You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. We are starting uh, a new series next week. We'll still be in Psalm. We're going to do Psalm 150. The next three weeks, we're going to focus on, after this, focus on what we believe, owning our vision. We're talking about praise again. So this is part of probably next week's message as well, um, as we look to the Lord and the glory of the Lord. But then three weeks following, we're going to look at, you know, who are we? What do we want to be about? We talk about worship. We talk about growing together. Again, we're talking about um, being a blessing and going out and, uh, and sharing Christ's love to others. So keep that in mind. And then hopefully end of September, October, we'll begin a series in Hosea, Boundless, Resentless Love of God. So we look forward to, to delving in and, and seeing what the, our minor prophet Hosea has to say to us, or God has to say through Hosea to us. I like to look at bumper stickers. Anybody else like to look at bumper stickers? Some of them are very unusual. Some of them make me kind of cringe. Others make me think. And there's one that I saw uh, many years ago, not many years ago, but a few years ago, that said this. We think, we believe. We think, we believe. Now, as you think about that, what is it saying? As I try to evaluate, I try to analyze, I try to analyze a lot of bumper stickers. What's it trying to say, right? What is is it saying? Well, what we think impacts us, right? What we think about, what we dwell on, what we meditate on affects then how we must believe and how we must then live, right? For followers of Christ, what we think impacts what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about others. This morning's passage reminds us to meditate on the Lord and the Lord of glory. And as we meditate on the Lord of glory, the psalmist is convinced that it will change us. It will impact us. It will do something in us that we need to be done. I love how Charles Spurgeon says about this psalm and what he gets out of it. He says this, he says, God's least is greater than man's greatest, God's lowest is higher than man's highest. There's nothing about the infinite Lord which is unworthy of his royalty. And on the other hand, nothing is wanting or lacking to the splendor of his reign. His majesty is honorable and his honor is glorious. He's altogether wonderful. Well, follow along as I read this psalm of praise, this psalm of David. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. And they will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. 
The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. The Lord is good to all, for he has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generation. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all who look to you, you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of all those who fear him. He hears their cries and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked will be destroyed. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing psalm. Father, again, it just reminds us of who you are and how much you deserve our worship. So this morning, as we enter in and as we look at this psalm and do somewhat of some justice to this psalm as we look at it, Lord, convict us, change us, encourage us, renew our worship of this God of glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christine Kerr of the School of Psychology at the University of Glasgow and Rob Jenkins of the Department of Psychology at the University of New York worked together to study, which is a fascinating study, the usefulness of capturing images reflected in the pupils of one's eye. They found that the incredible level of detail in modern digital photographs were able to pick out the tiny reflections of faces hidden in the eyes of the subject. The pupil of the eye is like a black mirror, says Jenkins, and he and Kerr recovered the images of bystanders that were as small as 27 pixels across. For those in photography, that must mean something that must mean that it was really small. My son needs to explain that to me. Yet, when presented to panelists in a face-matching task, observers were able to, to match the diminutive faces 71% of the time. When the faces were familiar ones, people recognized the identity correctly 84% of the time. So they, they come to this conclusion. The implications for the usefulness of recovering such Im images are varied including criminal investigation. They say this, the researchers say that in crimes which the victims are photographed, such as hostage taking or child sex abuse cases, reflections in the eyes of the photographic subject could help to identify the perpetrators. Isn't that fascinating? Such research does it not brings to mind the old nursery song, Oh, Be Careful Little Eyes, 
what you see. In a very literal sense, our eyes reflect what they take in. What do others see when they search your eyes for evidence of where and with whom you've been? In many ways, we can say it this way for those who are followers of Christ, we become what we look at. We become whom we worship. The Westminster Confession, the Shorter Catechism, number one, reminds us of what? That our chief end of humanity is what? To glorify the Lord and to enjoy him forever. We know that tension, though, right, that exists between glorifying God and then going after our own desires and looking to other things other than the, other than the Lord of glory. Yet in this psalm, we are both encouraged and challenged to glorify God, to glorify the Lord of glory. So this morning, I want us to look at three questions. I want to explore three questions with you. Who is this Lord of glory? How can we know of this Lord of glory? And how do we glorify the Lord of glory? Look with me again at verses 4 through 7. And get again, get to understand this Lord of glory. Who is the Lord of glory? And if you looked at that psalm, it said the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, multiple times, right? Here it says, one generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds, and they will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. And in verse 12, it reminds us of the glorious splendor of the Lord. So I need to ask us, what does the term glorious or glory mean generally and as it pertains to God? Generally, the Hebrew word here for glory communicates beauty, wealth, honor, Dignity, power. The Greek word for glory denotes reputation, fame, splendor, honor, praise, and majesty. It can refer to God, it can, can refer to humanity, and it can refer to objects. To man, glory reflects dignity of character or position. Often in the Old Testament, when it talks about the glory of man, it talks about how many people are in one's kingdom. For today, what does glory often means to us? It means wealth. It means beauty, often. To objects, glory reflects beauty, right? Uh, the, the, the temple that Solomon built was beautiful. It was glorious. Today, we might say the Taj Mahal or locally the Naval Academy Chapel or the literature of Shakespeare, the paintings of Michael, Michelangelo and Picasso, the music of Bach, Handel, and Chicago. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, wow, that's good. Chicago's great, right? Who's my, there's somebody here that likes Chicago with me, don't they? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, there's other, it's good, cool. I'm old. But young people like Chicago, they're good. Right? As it pertains to God, the concept of glory is employed supremely in the Old Testament as a characteristic attribute and possession of only God. It describes his moral uniqueness. It describes the grandeur, grandeur of the Lord of the universe. 
So the psalm is helpful to where we see the Lord of glory. We see the Lord of glory in the creation of man. Man was created in God's image with glory and honor. We are his prized possession. We see the glory of God in the creation of the heavens and the earth. God's created world, as we talked about in the past, reflects a beauty and order that shows God's glory. The formations of the clouds and their shatter, the thunder and the lightning, the ocean waves, we see the splendor of his glory. We see his glory in dealing with his people throughout the Old and New Testament. Moses in the burning bush, we see the glory of God. We see the glory of God displayed in Isaiah as, he, as he's in, in the presence of God who sings, holy, holy, holy. We see the glory of God in, when John, the apostle John in the book of Revelation fell to his, to his feet as, as dead when he was in the presence of a holy, glorious Lord. See, the Lord touches mankind in such a way to make a difference in their lives. And in verses 8 and 9 in this passage, in 13 through 20, we see his glory in redemption. What is it? How do we see redemption? What does it say? The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He, he has compassion on all he has made. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving to all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of the Lord look, the eye of all who look to you and you who give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cries and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord is about redemption. The Lord is about changing us. The Lord is about renewing us. The Lord is about saving us. We see the glory of God in his work of redemption. You see, the glory of God, the glory of the Lord is a sum effects of all his attributes. As you think about his grace, it is glorious. As you think about his truth, it is glorious. As you think about his goodness, it is glorious. As you think about his justice and mercy, it is glorious. As you think about his power, it is glorious. If you think about his eternality, it is glorious. It's all that he is. He's the Lord of glory. The glory of the Lord is intrinsic, natural, fundamental, central. That is, it is essential to God as light is to sun, as blue is to sky, as wet is to water. You do not make the sun light, it is light. You do not make the sky blue, it is blue. You do not make the water wet, it is wet. In all of these cases, the attribute is intrinsic to the object. Let's compare that to man's glory. Man's glory is granted to him. God made man and women. We've been given this glory. It's not intrinsic, it's been given to us. Think about it this way. If you take a king and you take, all, take away all his robes and crowns and you give him filthy rags and he's living with beggars on the street for many weeks, you will not tell the difference between who the king was and who the beggar was. Because there is no intrinsic glory. The only glory the king has is when you give him a crown and a robe and you sit him on the throne. He has no intrinsic glory. And that is the point. The only glory that humanity has is granted 
to them. See, the, the glory that is in God is in his essence. You cannot de-glorify God because glory is in his nature. You can't touch his glory. You cannot, it cannot be taken away. It cannot be added to. It is, it is in his entire being. That is why, I'll say this quote again, it's so beautiful by Spurgeon. God's least is greater than man's greatest. His lowest is higher than man's highest. There is nothing about the infinite Lord which is unworthy of his royalty. And on the other hand, nothing is lacking to the splendor of his reign. His majesty is honorable. His honor is glorious. And he's altogether wonderful. That is the Lord of glory. That is the God who has come and invited us into a relationship with him. That is the God that we say that we serve. That is the God that we praise. He is glorious in all that he is. In 1715, Louis XIV of France died. Now, Louis XIV of France called himself the Great. In fact, he made the infamous statement, I am the state basically declaring, I am a god. His court was the most magnificent in Europe, and his funeral was glorious. In fact, he, he laid out what his funeral should look like once he died. His body was laid, imagine, in a gold coffin. And to dramatize the, the deceased king's greatness, orders were given that the cathedral should be very lightly dimmed, dimly lighted with only one special candle above the coffin, reminding him, them of the king of France. And so when the bishop came to speak, to give the eulogy, thousands were, were hushed in silence. And so as the, as, the, as the bishop came and to speak, he slowly reached down and he snuffed out the candle and said, only God is great. Only God is glorious. This is who the glory of the Lord is. And so if the Lord is purely glorious and great, how can we know him? Well, we can know him as was shared throughout our confession of sin, our confession of faith, even words that Kevin uh, shared, even the, the songs that we sang, even Paul, as he mentioned about about Christ, we can know the glory of, of the Lord through Christ himself. And that's what the psalm is pointing us to. The psalm is reminding us of what we know now, that the glory of God ultimately can, can be seen in the glory of Christ. Throughout the life of Christ, from his birth to his resurrection, we see moments of his glory and they were revealed, and we get a glimpse of his glory. The shepherds beheld his glory, right, in the announcement of his birth. And as they, as they were confronted with the glory of the Lord, they were changed, as, as well as the, the wise men. We see the glory of the Lord of Jesus in the temple. We see the, as he cleansed the te temple, we see the glory of Jesus in his wilderness when he's tempted by Satan. We see the glory of the Lord in his transfiguration. We see the glory of the Lord in his healings. In his miracles, we see the glory of the Lord as he enters in the lives of peoples like the, the woman with, who had multiple husbands we, and, and see how she was confronted by the glory of the Lord and was changed. We see the disciples being experiencing the glory of the Lord in his resurrection and they, and they were changed. 
But one act of, one work of Jesus I wanted to focus on this morning is, and again, as was mentioned in much of what we did today to prepare us for this time, is his death, the glory of his death. Because in the glory of his death, what do we know? We find, we find peace with God. We find a right relationship with God. We, we have now eternal hope. We have unconditional love. And so you must say, Jeff, how is the death of Christ glorious? How can it be glorious that, that Jesus would die, killed for us? I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul in his letter to uh, the Galatians. He says this, May I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Boast can also be translated glory. Paul glories in the cross. It is his passion to boast, to glory on the death of Christ. Why? Why? Why would he do that? Because in his death, God's wrath was satisfied and his justice was met by the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But not only that, his death covered all of our sins, past, present, and future. On that death, as he received God's wrath, it also says their needs of their sins to be forgiven have been dealt with. See, he satisfied both the demands of the God and the needs of Christ's people. This double transaction achieved by Christ alone in one event is a matter of eternal glory. And for him to do that, he had to be faultless. For the atonement, for his death on the cross to be acceptable to God, the one being sacrificed had to be without blemish, without defect, right? The lamb that was used in the offering had to be without blemish. See, the utter sinlessness of Jesus qualified him to be our Savior. See, Christ living also a perfect, obedient life is crucial for knowing Jesus as his death. If there was any sin in Christ, he would have been disqualified from saving us by his death. Christ had to live perfectly for us before he could die for us. Think about it. Even when he was before Pilate, Pilate testifies that I find no fault in him. High ironic, though, Pilate paraded Jesus with a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and he said to the crowd, Behold the man. Behold the man. Behold this man, Jesus. And yet many, as they were looking at the glory of God, yet many missed the man and failed to know his glory and grace. Even as Pilate tries to intimidate Jesus in his trial, Jesus' fearlessness was just disconcerting to him because Jesus corrects Pilate's false assumption about who has the power to free him. You get a glimpse again of the glory of Jesus by his response. What does he say? You have no authority over me at all unless it has been given you from above. This reply is full of meaning. Jesus went to the cross voluntarily, willingly. He was actively obedient to his Father. There is no conflict between the will of God the Father and between the will of his Son. The glory of God was revealed at that moment. 
And at the cross, Jesus ultimately suffered not only physical pain, listen, but also total abandonment from his heavenly Father. He bore the weight of God's displeasure. He felt the wrath of the Father poured out against sin. And so when he cried out, which is in a psalm as well, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me at the cross? He was experiencing the reality of being forsaken by the Father. To be forsaken by God is the ultimate penalty of sin. To be forsaken is to be cast out into other darkness. It is to receive the anger of the curse of God. In terms of the covenant that God has made with his people in the Old Testament, to be cursed for God's people was to be cut off from the light of God's presence. And so Jesus at the the cross was our scapegoat. He took the curse for us, the curse that we deserve because of our sin, was placed on him. And as he took the curse, he, he was cast out for us. And he, he removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, from the presence of God. And on the cross, Jesus becomes a sight in the sight of God. Listen, the most awful dis- display of ugliness imaginable. Imagine all the sins, past, present, and future, is placed on Christ. The Father sees that, and it's an ugly display. He's now polluted with the filth of sin he bears for his people. The Father breaks fellowship with Jesus, and thus darkness fills the land. He turned out the lights, in a sense. And at that moment, it seems that there there was no glory at all. And you ask, where is the glory in that? For Jesus, absolutely not. Nothing. For us, For us, it is the greatest moment in world history. I remember being asked when I was applying for a particular position at the bank, they said, what is the most defining moment in history? This is the most defining moment in history. At one, at the same moment, God, full extent of his judgment and wrath was was the moment, incredible expression of his glorious grace. Humanity can know now and experience the Lord of glory. Remember, the curtain in that time when Christ died on the cross was torn in two. That curtain that separated people from God and from his holy presence was torn in two. And because of Jesus, we now can enter into his glorious presence for he has removed the barrier between God and man. And we now can enter boldly the throne of grace because of Jesus. So what does that mean for us? The God The Lord of glory, glorious in all that he is. We see the glory displayed in his creation in many different ways, but ultimately in Christ. How does that, how then should that impact us? How do we then glorify the Lord? The children's shorter catechism says this, by loving him and doing what he commands. Jesus summed that up as well, right? To love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love neighbors as yourself. But what prompts us even to do that? What's interesting, friends, is that God, because he's such a God of glory, is delighted to glorify us and thus enjoy and delight in us. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 
through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. Again, reminding us of this psalm. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. Again, reminding us of what the psalmist says here in Psalm 145. And we, who with unveiled faces, all reflect, all behold, the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Unlike Moses who had an encounter with the glorious God and then went before his people with a veil to hide the fading glory, his fading glory on his face, Paul stands as with all God's people with unveiled faith, knowing that the glory of the gospel will never diminish. It will never diminish. We who are in Christ, we who are Christ followers, we have put our faith in this Christ, now stand unashamedly before the world, reflecting in every aspect of our lives the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel. And our glory does not fade. This song, Paul is reminded it does not fade. Our glory is ever increasing as the Spirit of Christ changes us more and more into the likeness of Christ. So friends, how do we glorify the Lord of glory? We meditate, we behold the glory of the Lord. We, we behold and, and we rest and we think about the glorious gospel We keep the main thing, the main thing. Listen to what verses 16 and 19 remind us of the glorious Christ helps us to experience. It says, you open your hands and he satisfies the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires who fear him. He hears their cries and saves them. As we reflect, as we fix, as we boast in the glory of the gospel, it is reminding us that we are changed. So if you're dealing with a particular sin like anger or lust or whatever it may be, one of the things that will help you change is by you looking at the glory of the love that you have experienced in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I often, in my homework that I give to those who come to me in counseling or in my discipleship, I said, where are those areas where you need to apply the gospel to your heart's struggles? Where are you being self-reflective and where you need Jesus in those times when you're dealing with your kids and you're so easily angered or you're dealing with your spouse and you're so easily to, to offend or you're slow to You're slow to listen and quick to speak. Where do you need to apply the gospel in those moments, in those times? Where do you need to see the glory of Christ and all that he has offered you in Christ and all the forgiveness that you're experiencing in Christ to apply that in those areas of struggle? 
Because as we meet the glory and we fix our eyes on Christ, I believe he changes us. He helps us in our struggles. He renews us in our struggles. He makes us more loving and capable people because as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the Spirit is willing and able to change you into his likeness. Who is this Lord of glory? Who is this Lord of glory? He is an amazing Savior who delights to redeem us and bring us into a living, vibrant, life-changing experience. No matter what you are wrestling with, friends, God is about wanting to help us grow in the grace of the gospel. Sons and daughters, behold the glory of the Lord through Christ, and his spirit will ever increasingly change you. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, I needed to hear this message so easy because I want to give up. Oh, I continue to struggle in this particular again, error again, again and again. And yet, Father, it reminds me as I, in my, as I fix my eyes on the glory of the Lord. As I, I'm serious with dealing with that particular sin issue in my life, you are wanting and delighting to change me, to reflect more of your beauty, more of your love, more of your glory. That's his promise to all of us who have their faith in Christ. So, Father, let us not go here not thinking deeply about how we need the gospel to help us as we live our lives this morning and on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday. Oh, Father, help us to fix our eyes on the glory of the Lord.